0: Welcome to Fostering Hope, a program that opens a door into the world of foster care and adoption, sponsored by Foster Adopt Connect. You'll hear stories from all facets of foster care, from kids who have experienced the system firsthand, from parents who are taking on the challenges and rewards of creating forever families for foster children, and from child welfare workers and policymakers who work within the system while also working to make it better. Besides hearing important stories, you'll learn how you can help society's most vulnerable children in big ways or small. Please welcome our host, the Youth Program Supervisor at Foster Adopt Connect, Nathan Ross.
1: Welcome to Fostering Hope. I'm your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Liz Luce. We are joined today with Jennifer Townsend, Tom Pruden, and Ashlyn Stiles, who will be talking about their programs and the work that they do. So can each of you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? JT, you can go first.
2: Okay, great. Um, yeah, so I have been a co-host on this show before, but here today I am a guest as the recruitment program supervisor. I supervise our extreme recruitment and 30 days to family programs at Connect. Okay.
0: I'm Tom Pruden. Excuse me. I am the director of investigations. I've been employed here for about the last uh, almost five years, and prior to that, I was employed with the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department for over 25 years, where most of that time was as a detective.
3: I'm Ashlyn Stiles. I am an extreme recruiter, and I have been with the agency for three years. Prior to that, I was a preschool teacher for seven years.
1: Okay, awesome. Well, thank you all for being here. So we'll get started with the 30 Days program. So, Jennifer, can you tell us what that program is, how it came about, and its impact?
2: Sure. Sure. Um, So 30 Days to Family is a program that started out of a St. Louis agency, Foster and Adoptive Care Coalition. They saw a need in the child welfare system to help notify relatives and kinship providers. So that's sometimes also referred to as fictive kin, if you imagine um, family, friends, neighbors, teachers. Um, There was a need for case managers to notify those individuals that the child has entered foster care and to see if they would like to be a support to the family or to possibly take placement of the child. But because caseworkers have, you know, high caseloads and not, they don't always have the time. They don't always have the tools, the resources to contact some of these individuals. St. Louis saw a need for a program that would specialize in just that search and also um, assisting the relatives with taking placement of the of the child in in foster care and there's a lot of data that backs up the um, positive outcomes for children if they're placed with relatives or kinship providers within 30 days that's the magic number and so that's how we came upon um, 30 days to family it's also supportive um, there's a, a federal guideline. That was put into that was um, last uh, amended in 2008. That uh, also says that child entering foster care, a, a diligent search or a search of relatives need to happen within 30 days. So that's kind of the magic number in the child welfare system. So that's that's how that timeline came into effect. And basically, when we when a child comes into foster care, we get a referral within the first 72 hours. To start looking for you know starting with parents then grandparents, aunts, uncles, out to cousins, first cousins, second cousins, third cousins, and then, like I said earlier, those fictive kin, so the um, teachers and the neighbors and whatnot, and basically we're we're contacting them, letting them know that the child has come into care and that um, first and foremost, we're looking to be able to place the child with someone that they already know. So if we're unable to find a relative or kinship resource, then that's when the child goes to foster care or what we usually refer to as stranger foster care. Obviously – um I'm a foster parent myself and I love foster parents and I think that, you know, we need great foster parents in our community. However, I strongly believe and our program strongly believes that children do better with relative and kin. So if we can avoid stranger foster care, then we should. So, um, our 30 days to family specialist is responsible for finding not only one placement, but f- at least three safe and appropriate, uh, relative or kinship resources for each child on the case. And that usually occurs in the first two weeks. And placement occurs uh, before the 30-day timeline is up. So they're spending a minimal amount of time in shelters or stranger foster care before they're moving back into a home with you know, somebody that they already know, someone that they have a relationship with, someone who cares about them.
1: And so, Jennifer, can you walk us through, you, you said, Like two weeks, you're finding all those people. What does that that look like?
2: So 30 Days to Family relies heavily on um, being very personable. So our 30 Days to Family specialist, her name is Ashley Vance. She does an amazing job. And uh, she usually starts by doing some preliminary checks on databases. So Facebook, um, Missouri CaseNet, databases like that, open source databases like that. Um, but the work really starts at what we call the 72-hour family support team meeting, and that's when everyone on the child's professional team comes together with the parents and, um, you know, talk about kind of well, what brought the child into care and, and what's going to be required moving forward. And at that point, Ashley, our 30 Days Family Specialist, would speak with um, – One or both parents, whoever's there, if there are other relatives there, she's speaking with them and trying to gather as much family information as possible. So she starts with, you know, your child doesn't care. I would love, you know, I know that you care about your child a lot. I care about your child being with family. Uh, Do you have any suggestions for where you would like your child to be placed? Mm -hmm. And then from there we say, you know, additionally, we want to build a family tree for the child. And so, can you just run me through who are your parents? Who are your aunts, uncles? Who are your cousins? Do you have any family friends that are really close with you that are appropriate? And so, um, she's trying to build that family tree to at least 150 relatives, you know, ASAP and contact as many people as possible. Uh, very quickly. So her first couple weeks are usually around 60 hours of work a week, um, meeting with people on weekends and evenings as necessary. I I know that our guest
4: last week, Pat O'Brien, said he had some very good saying about it, but it was um, there is only a finite number of uh, strangers, but there's an infinite number of people in the family. What is um, a higher, like you said, 150 minimum? Um, What can those family trees get up to? How many relatives? Are are there able to be found?
2: Um I think in our 30 days to family, 300 is the highest we usually get to. Um, I'm sure we could get higher. We're going to speak later in the program about extreme recruitment that gets up to 500 relatives on that. But because the program is uh, shortened, we usually, yeah, we'll get a We have to get a 150 minimum. Uh, we can get up to 300, but we usually don't go beyond that because at that point we already have so many resources much closer to the epicenter of the family tree. Absolutely.
1: So can you talk to us about a specific case that kind of highlights what 30 days does?
2: Sure. Um, so one case that comes to mind just because we say sometimes, you know, if every child had a 30 days to family specialist, we wouldn't need extreme recruitment so much. And that'll make more sense when we go into that program in the next session session. But, um, One case where that's really highlighted is we had worked with children who have significant uh, uh, developmental delays. And so that's a vulnerability that will sometimes impact that child's ability to uh, be reunified. It'll sometimes um, impact how quickly they're adopted or find permanency. And Mm so uh, Ashley has worked with a sibling set where that was the case where both siblings had developmental delays. And um, she was able to find a few placement resources within the family but the primary resource and the one we recommended most highly was the grandmother because she had already helped so much with the children and she knew how to work with them and there was already a lot of trust there um, and so we thought it was a no-brainer but there were a few issues uh, one being the grandmother worked full-time and she would need childcare, and that would be very, that would be pretty simple for most of our thirty days to family cases. It would just be, you know, finding an, an opening in a in a local childcare facility. However, because these children's needs were so high, they were continually rejected by schools in our area. So we're we're talking about our Kansas City metro area. Mm-hmm. They were rejected by six, seven, eight schools, mm. but um, Alan, uh, Ashley was just you know extremely diligent uh kept calling kept advocating um in fact there you know even if a school had said no she kept moving forward letting them know you know these children are going through a transition this is difficult they really need somebody to show up for them and give them what they need and the grandmother's very invested she'll help you with that so she spent hours and hours and hours calling schools and and you know advocating for these kiddos and finally got them on a wait list um at some local, at a local Head Start, and was able to, you know, keep moving up the food chain, kind of at mm-hmm. the Head Start, and was able to get them in, and they've done extremely well there. So um, that's a big shout out also to our local Head Start programs because I think that's really the best place for them. Um, so they've been there for almost a year, and uh, they're doing amazing, and I just think. Previous to moving in with their grandmother, those kids in the 30 days had already been moved three times because um, of their behaviors. They, they were disrupted on several times. And so I think the fact that they've been with her for so long is a testament to how relatives really um, are so committed to these children.
1: Oh, That's awesome. And so I know that we have to go to break here shortly, but when we return, I do want to hear about the extreme recruitment program that you mentioned and what that does. And then we'll also hear then from Ashlyn and Tom about their specific experiences. I think it's really cool that the 30 days program is there. I know as a foster care alumni, how important that relative is and having my family there when I was first going into care was super important. And though I didn't end up with relatives i can definitely see the value i know my own sister reconnected with some of my family and stuff so that's really cool and i definitely want to hear more about that and how that's extended to the recruitment programs when we return on fostering hope Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I am your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Liz Luce. We are talking with Jennifer Townsend, Tom Pruden, and Ashlyn Styles today about the recruitment program and 30 Days to Family. So before break, we were talking with you, JT, about what 30 Days to Family is and what it looks like when that program is done effectively. And so now I want to lead the conversation into extreme recruitment. So can you talk to us about what that program is?
2: Sure. Um, so... You know, foster care is a temporary living arrangement until children can reunify with their parents or they are adopted. But too often when we have children with significant vulnerabilities, developmental delays, behaviors, they're older, part of a large sibling group, all those sort of things, um, they're languishing in foster care. And so that's really where extreme recruitment comes in. We utilize a lot of the same recruitment strategies that other programs use, uh, like the websites and, you know, asking current information. former foster parents, but really the cornerstone of our program and what makes us different is our uh, allegiance to the family finding. So a lot like what I was talking about in the 30 days to family, we're doing with children who have already been in care for um, at least 15 months. But I, I've worked with kids who have been in care for 14 years waiting for their forever families. Mm-hmm. And so we work with a private investigator, um, Tom Pruden, who you guys mm-hmm. heard introduced himself earlier, um, to try to find unfindable families to get uh, quote-unquote unadoptable children adopted. So,
1: so Tom and Ashlyn, what does the day-to-day of your job look like in terms of extremely recruiting for families?
0: Well, what we do is, um, in layman's terms, is we try to expand the family tree out farther than it ever has been before. So the state has got these kids in foster care. They've been in foster care for an extended period of time, and they've been unable to find a permanent home for them. So the case gets referred to us, our team, and what we do is we go down and we comb through that file, that child's file that's uh, held down at the children's division, and we look for any clues that will help us to expand that child's family tree, names, addresses, things like that. Um, And then what we do is we try to, we blow that family tree up until Kevin Bacon pops up and then, yeah. Um, and then we go a little farther.
3: Uh,
0: so usually we try to have, um, uh, you know, there might be when we start the case, there might be maybe 10 known relatives, if that many. Sometimes there's less than that. Um, by the time we're finished, that family tree, there's 150 to maybe 300 people on that. That genogram. Okay. Um, and then what we do is we use all the online type tools that we have access to. Number one is Facebook. Uh, we go to Facebook and we have some other uh, database sites that, that we access also, looking for addresses and phone numbers for all these people that are on this genogram. Just because we have a name mm-hmm. uh, doesn't mean that we know where they are and how to ac- uh, get a hold of them. Uh, and that's the hard part. Um, so what we, what we do then is, is we kind of look at that genogram and figure out who we're looking for a gatekeeper who we refer to as the gatekeeper. Usually it's a grandmother or an aunt or an uncle, somebody that kind of knows the family and knows maybe everybody's situation or where they might be Mm -hmm. to help us start looking. Um, and we try to meet with that person in person. Uh, we do as much in-person communication as we can as opposed to just making a phone call. It's so much easier for somebody to tell us no over the phone mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, we're knocking on their door trying to get in, sit down, talk with them, tell let them know what's going on with this child and what we're trying to do for them. So once we can make that personal connection with them, build a rapport, we get a lot more information out of them. And so our... Daily, that's what we're doing. We're we're looking for people, uh, people associated with this child, family members, mm-hmm. um, and trying to make contact with them and seeing what's going on with them and if they might be a, a permanent option for this child.
3: So after we find someone who is interested in taking placement or taking the child into the home, um we work really hard in building relationships with that person, um, helping them through the process, of getting licensed, working with our licensing program at Foster Adopt Connect, working with our behavioral interventionist program at Foster Adopt Connect to make sure that the placement is successful.
1: Okay.
4: So this isn't necessarily for placement. It's for permanency. yes. Yes.
1: And so how do you then communicate the families that you find to the professional team? We heard about the family support team. How do you communicate those findings to the team and what then happens from there?
3: We have weekly meetings with the team. Um, We have what's called a weekly action plan, which are set tasks, who we've initiated contact with, who we've met with um, family members, and then we talk with the team members to see if they feel like this is a safe and appropriate um, permanency option for the child.
2: So um, even though we get our referrals from the professional team, there are sometimes some... Um, barriers within the professional team, just some mm-hmm. biases against their relatives. Um, some typical ones would be, you know, well, where have they been? Um, well, they're, you know, the the parents made bad decisions. The parents do drugs. Like I'm sure the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and so. A lot of what happens in the first meeting aside from gathering information is, um, Ashlyn and Tom or, you know, our other recruiters would speak with the professionals about, you know, what are your concerns about moving forward with a relative? And is, you know, let's unpack that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes these relatives have no idea what's going on. If the parents were not making good decisions, the relatives probably distance themselves from the parents. Um, also, it's difficult to get information about a child who's entered foster care. There's a right. lot of, um I know on a previous show we talked about confidentiality and secrecy and the foster care system is very difficult. If I was trying, if my niece or nephew came into care, it would be extremely difficult for me to track down where they are, who they're with, who do I need to talk to. Um On one of our other cases, uh we had a, a little boy who had been in care for three years. And when our stream recruiter contacted his family in Florida, they said that they were told he had been deceased, that he had died uh, years ago. They had mourned his loss only to find out that he's been living in Missouri for the last several years. Um, and yes, they would love to adopt him. So, I mean, and no. it happens all the time. That sounds shocking. Happens all the time. That's actually,
1: that's what I was going to ask. Uh-huh. How often with the recruitment program, are you finding that families, families, are able to reconnect quickly once they know that the child is in existence. Are you finding that?
2: Yeah. I mean, and I don't want to paint it as if, you know, every family has, has hundreds of people that are waiting. We build the tree up so much because, you know, a lot of the family members aren't appropriate, but, Mm You know, we've been doing this for a long time. We know how to assess a family. We run extensive background checks. You know, we really, like Ashlyn said, develop relationships with these people. We know if they're appropriate or not. And within each family, um, you know, you go far enough and there's a diamond for sure. Yeah. And sometimes there's dozens of diamonds. It, you know, you just have to get in there and. And see, that's why a lot of times, too, they'll say, like, well, why would we contact a second cousin or, Mm -hmm. you know, an aunt they've never met? Well, because sometimes that's the diamond that we're looking for. I don't know. I know you were going to mention Jay's story. How how are they related again? Um, That
3: is Jay's second cousin.
2: Mm-hmm. So I know, I know Ashlyn's gonna share in the next segment about um about one of our kiddos, but but as you'll hear, that's a story where it seems like the relative wouldn't be worth looking at because they're
4: so far removed, but um it was it was definitely worth the effort. And even those relatives that are closer who aren't appropriate sometimes hold a lot of information. So when the team says don't talk to them, they have a drug pop. Well, I bet they know a lot about where the family is and maybe some contact information. So it's not like you x people out because they won't be appropriate. They could still have information. Correct. Correct.
1: So we have to go to break. But when we return, I do want to hear about, you know, why this family and Ken is so important as we um, and then some success stories and some stats when we return on fostering hope. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I am your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Liz Luce. We've been talking with three of our program specialists who run our recruitment programs today about 30 Days to Family and Extreme Recruitment. So before break, Jennifer, you mentioned that there was, was a story that kind of related to the importance of Extreme Recruitment. So I wanted to turn to you, Tom and Ashlyn, to see if you could elaborate on what that experience was.
0: We had a child... Um we'll call him Jay, who was lower functioning, considerably lower functioning, and had been languishing in foster care for years. And the state had completely run out of options for him. And we got the case and expanded his family tree out, and um, we weren't having any luck either. And then we went back through it, uh, got a hold of a sec, uh, an I think a second aunt, um, or a great aunt, I guess you'd say, um, who led us to a second cousin who I think also had maybe been talked to once before Hmm. by people on this child's team but kind of dismissed because I think first impressions of this person were that maybe he was uh, in a position to also be struggling with maybe some issues of his own. Uh, They may have thought he was a little delayed, uh, definitely, and he was poor. Um, But when we went and met with him, we didn't find, we, I I could see where you would see, you know, that take on first impressions, but yeah, he was poor. But uh, he, he seemed to be like he would be a perfect fit for Jay. Um, And when we explained Jay's situation to him and his delays and, that he was, you know, mentally delayed and whatnot. Um, the response that we got from this person was that, well, what you consider to be delayed, uh, and what we consider to be delayed might, might, may not be the same thing. Mm-hmm. He may fit mm-hmm. right in with us, mm-hmm. <laughs> which we thought was funny. Yeah. Uh, and it turned out to be exactly the case. Yeah. Uh, they were, uh, definitely poor, but, a perfect fit for Jay, and they were the ones that were going to stick with him and do what they needed to do to get him back in their family, and they did.
3: So we were able to talk with the team, get the team on board. Um, we there were some barriers that we did have to overcome. The home did not meet licensing requirements due to some holes in the walls. Um, there were some safety concerns there, and so we were able to um, talk with Home Depot in the area, and they came out and did um, the work for free, making sure oh, to wow. get the home um, up to par for licensing uh, requirements. And so um, after they did that, we were able to um, hopefully start moving, transitioning into the home. Jay was having visits um, with the uh, resource, and he was able to... Um, have overnights and then he would go back to where his placement was. Um, and so finally we were able to transition him fully into the home and, um, we realized that the home had bed bugs. So mm-hmm. we were having to, um, find out how we could get that paid for, help the family.
2: Can I interject? We, I just wanted to note that we found out later that, uh, the child was actually getting those bed bugs from his, from, um, a state agency, actually. Oh, wow. So it wasn't coming from his home. It, it, he had gotten them from the state agency and and taken them to his um,
3: potential adoptive resource. <laughs>
2: so
3: the adoptive resource um, and I were working together, and Tom, we were all working together and trying to, actually the whole extreme recruitment team worked together and trying to raise money to Pay for the bed bugs, it was going to be about two thousand dollars, so we all used Facebook and used community resources and everybody um did an amazing job coming together and raising that money. We were even then able to get him um a new bed and help them get all new furniture in the home
1: That's amazing
4: yeah <laughs> shout out to home Depot, <laughs> yeah,
1: yes, the importance of and to all of our resources. friends and family yeah, that absolutely.
4: donated to us on Facebook. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And so we've talked about the importance of family and kin and how that helps kids connect. But can you talk about some of the challenges that our families face, not only with the kids, but with the system and how how that has been beneficial because of the importance of being connected and what that has looked like?
2: Well, just baseline children benefit from having a a tie to their heritage a sense of identity that you get from being a part of your family or having ties to your biological family Mm -hmm. and so we kind of just we start there and um, we also recognize that you know most of the children that we're working with they didn't come into care as an infant. Even if they did, I would still argue that a connection with biological family is important, but, but they didn't come into care as infants. They had relationships and they were loved by a lot of people and they had love for these people, um, for many years before they came into care. And so that doesn't go away just because they're in foster care. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really try to always keep that in mind when we come against barriers. And we also try to get professionals on the team to think about it. You know, empathetically, how would you feel if your niece or nephew came into care? Would you want to be contacted? Would you want right. to be given an opportunity to take placement or provide permanency, depending on, you know, what the situation is? And something else we need to remember is, you know, when I became a foster parent, I had planned on being a foster parent my entire life. I knew I wanted to be a foster parent when I was a kid. I had planned for this and had really started planning for it in the year leading up to Becoming a foster parent, whereas these relatives, we're literally knocking on doors, we're showing up at their workplace, we're giving them a call out of the blue. Mm-hmm. They did not anticipate this. They didn't plan it. Um, and so when their home isn't ready or they have to get around work schedules or whatever the case may be, um, we hold their hand through the whole process because we understand this isn't exactly what they had planned for their life. They're just trying to make the best out of the
1: situation. And that leads me actually to a, a question I had. I know that people often fear the state coming into their home. They don't want to be judged. They don't want to have to follow the rules. I'm living my life just fine. And now you're telling me I have to meet these standards to take a kid. How do you keep relatives and fictive kin people engaged while they're going through some of the struggles that come with taking a child out of the foster care system?
2: Um, what I see a lot is when we're having those conversations, extreme recruiters and, you know, Tom is meeting with them and they're just very understanding. They're apologizing first and foremost that this relative that they care about so much has, is even in the child welfare system. Whether or not it was avoidable is irrelevant because when a child enters foster care, that's, that's loss, that's right. trauma regardless. And so we're apologizing for the situation that we now find ourselves in. Um, we're coming at it with the assumption that they want what's best for the child. Mm-hmm. Um, we are always trying, you know, we, we never speak ill of the other professionals on the team, but we also try to help them um, recognize that we are not, uh, you know, children's division, that we have a very targeted scope, that we are just looking at permanency. So mm-hmm. we really can't answer for, why these are the rules. We're just going to help them navigate the system. So we really, you know, we, we can advocate for them. We can't change the rules, but we can advocate for them and we can help them, um, you know, make, make the best of the situation. So they don't like people in their home, Mm -hmm. but if they recognize that this is a, for a finite amount of time, um, they're pretty, they'll, they'll kind of get with the program.
1: Okay. And so Tom or Ashlyn, do you have any, experiences about how that has played out for you so working with the family through those hurdles to help them stay engaged or has it been your experience that once you have those conversations with families it's pretty smooth sailing
0: well just about every family that we work with needs help navigating the system Mm -hmm. and so we're kind of trying to be that light at the end of the tunnel for them. We Mm -hmm. try to do whatever we can to influence the system, to expedite it. Uh, If they need help with forms or uh, just getting to a meeting that they're required to attend or training, uh, we'll make sure that they get there. We make sure that they have transportation. If they need beds or a fire extinguisher, uh, furniture, whatever the state's requiring of this Mm -hmm. family to be, Acceptable to to take this child, we're going to make sure that we're there helping them, you know, every way we can so that it's not such a daunting task. And so it's, it's, people think, oh, well, I'll, I'll raise my hand and I'll take that kid. And, and then, you know, next weekend they're
1: there. Uh-huh. Here, here's
0: the kid, you know. Right. Well, that's not the way it is. There's a lot that they have to go through, a lot of hoops they have to jump through. And we try to help them through every one of those hoops that they have to jump through.
3: We are also there for um, emotional support. This is a lot to take in. And so the process is huge and it's long and we just want to be there for them. Um, you know, sometimes we have um, family members who will call in and we will just talk. We'll let them vent, um, ask questions. We do everything we can do to make sure we answer those questions. And if not, then I'm going to get the answers to that and I'm going to come back to you. So just being there for them, being that support for them
0: can help them stay engaged yes. at times. And we try to be very accessible. That's a, yeah. a big complaint that families have when they deal with the system is that they can't ever get a hold of anybody mm-hmm. never get a call back and mm-hmm. things like that. Well, we, we are very accessible. We answer the phone. We call them back. We answer our emails. Um, if we don't answer, it's only because we're talking to somebody else and we'll call them right back. Yeah. And they're not used to that.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, we have to, again, go to break here shortly. And when we return, I would like to kind of conclude with some stats. What has what have these two programs looked like in the lives of kids in the state of Missouri and beyond and kind of get some success stories and some ways that our community can reengage and helping kids find permanency. So when we come back on Fostering Hope, we will hear more. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I am your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Liz Luce. We've been talking with Jennifer, Tom, and Ashlyn today about the 30 Days to Family program and Extreme Recruitment program. And so as we wrap up, we just kind of want to hear from you all some outcomes. What has this program, what have both programs kind of done for our kids in the greater Kansas City community and beyond?
2: Um, Sure. So for our 30 days family program, the program we discussed at the start of the show, our success rate for placing children with relatives or kin is at 90 percent for the last year. Um, and the, the cases where it doesn't happen, um, actually one involved a, it was just one, and it was a mother that lived on the East Coast and a father who was from Africa. And so we honestly just didn't have relatives, many relatives to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise that's, that's very successful. And then for extreme recruitment, um, our success for, uh, permanency. So adoption or legal guardianship for closed cases is around 80% and our, um, outcomes for connecting children with safe and appropriate natural supports is at a hundred percent. And so what that means is sometimes we have kiddos who are already, you know, 16, 17, and they say they don't want to be adopted. And we have lots of conversations with them trying to unpack that. No. And sometimes we're successful. Sometimes we're not. And when we're not, we want the children to know that even if they do go, um, you know, live in their own apartment or what have you, that they always have relatives who are very invested and in, in there if they need them. So uh, teach them how to drive, teach them how to do taxes, invite them to every Christmas and Easter and birthday, mm-hmm. that sort of thing so that they, they are connected.
4: So I um, know that we've been doing the Extreme Recruitment Program now for five years, and I know Tom was uh, around in the old dinosaur ages back in the beginning. Do you see any <laughs> ch- changes um in the way that we used to do things five years ago when we first started to what we're doing now. I know that, for example, the teams and the children's division um, are much more used to the idea of placing a family because we've sort of hammered it into them over the years. Um, have new barriers come up or have, have um, new things gotten better since you began?
0: Oh, there's always new barriers. I don't think uh, the system's full of them, you know, so we just plow through them as we can. I think that's the thing that I've noticed is different is that since we've been going for so long, we've been, hopefully, I think anyway, or at least that's how I perceive it, is educating those in the system to maybe looking and thinking outside the box for just, or maybe kind of adopting a get-or-done type attitude. Mm -hmm. These kids are languishing in foster care. What can we do to get them back with family? Let's just do it. Mm-hmm. Let's go knock on a door. Let's drive across the state of Missouri and find, you know, Uncle Bill or Aunt Susie. Knock on the door and see if they're a placement and if they're willing. Let's get them up to snuff and get them ready for this kid and get them done and get it done.
4: So you've got the kids placed. Um, they're in the home, and we all know that adoption doesn't happen overnight or guardianship doesn't happen overnight. What does it look like for the recruitment teams? Um, Post placement. So that kid is placed now what?
2: Um, We're still keeping things moving forward, but also doing a lot of research and advocacy on, um, you know, wraparound services, including financial, you know, assistance. So one of the things I think we've learned a lot about in the last uh, two years probably is uh, we've been learning a lot more about uh department of mental health services uh social security income those sort of you know government assistance so that the family is prepared when the state uh, is less involved post-adoption um you know how are they going to pay for things how are they going to coordinate services who's going to be there for them when they no longer have a case manager coming to visit every month
4: and i think that um Maybe folks on the uh, outside of this room might be wondering, well, the kids are 18. Why why do we need to keep supporting them? But these are our extreme recruitment kids. These are our harder-to-place kids. So tell me why um, it is that we do need those adult supports as well.
2: Well, I know, um, I won't go into detail, but I know recently there was a story in the news about a a young man who was placed in a group home. He had been in and out of foster care. He had never been adopted, and um, he was found deceased and encased in cement. He had been murdered, and I couldn't read that story and not think how his life might have been different if he had been adopted, if he had had... um, Parents, uh, relatives who were checking in on him regularly and knew that something was amiss because I guarantee you something was amiss before um, he uh, passed. So Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's incredibly crucial that not only are we making sure that, you know, services are put in place, but that we have. Adults that are continuing to help our kids navigate their way into adulthood, whether or not they have developmental delays, because um, especially our extreme recruitment kids, they all have some vulnerability um, that they really need additional adult support. But we all do. So, yeah, so 18, 19, 30, you know, 50, you you still need that.
1: So what would you all say – are things that you would like to still see improved and how this program, the recruitment program and the 30 days program could benefit those system improvements?
0: I would have to say probably the communication factor with families and pot- potential permanency options for these kids and maybe exped- expediting the process. Okay. uh these kids get into foster care and it seems like you blink and all of a sudden they've been there for a year mm-hmm. and you know it's just kind of stagnant and they're not sure you know what's going to happen with the the bio parents what's going to happen with this kid's future you know so uh there needs to be uh some somehow some way the process needs to be expedited don't sure I'm not sure I have all the answers but yeah <laughs> um there are uh times when we as a team have been able to when once we get the case um to get the the process kind of kick started again because it's kind of been stagnant and get some communication going back with the family and the team getting them and kind of looking at the whole process from a, a fresh perspective even though they've had the case maybe for a few years and that kind of gets things rolling again so if we could get that with every case, it would be great.
2: Um, one thing I would like to see is better supports for uh, the adoption of our children with the most significant developmental delays. Um, extreme recruitment is has saved the state almost $4 million over the last five years because it costs less to uh, children who are adopted, costs less to the state than children that are in residentials, for instance. However, um it, it's a huge barrier to permanency when we have a child in a home, um, in a Department of Mental Health home, and maybe the parent is receiving a significant amount of money to care for them, but they're told that if they adopt the child, then that payment will be cut drastically, which means they can no longer stay at home. They can no longer afford some of the services that help them to keep that child uh, safe and in the home. And so um, I could make a whole show just about this fact that we are not supporting permanency for our most vulnerable youth. Um, here in Missouri, we could do better across the nation. We could do better.
1: Okay. And so we have to wrap up our show, but I do want to give a shout out. You said a, a foster and adoptive care coalition. Is that?
2: Yes. Amazing. That? Uh, yeah. Melanie, a uh, foster adoptive care coalition, and okay. she has a whole team behind her, but um, she created the programs um, and we, Love
1: them. So thanks, guys. <laughs> cool. So thank you, all for, okay. thank you all for being here today and for sharing about the programs. You've been listening to Fostering Hope brought to you by Foster Adopt Connect, uh, support and advocacy center for abused and neglected children and the families caring for them. To learn more about how to become a foster parent or to engage in our other services, please visit us at fosteradopt.org dot org or on Facebook, Foster Adopt Connect. Until next time. Thank you.